אני לא אשב עם נתניהו, חד משמעית. המשותפת? אני לא רואה אותנו יושבים איתם. אתה רואה בבן גביר וסמוטריץ' שותפים שלך? בכלל לא. Hello, this is election overdose, but we might as well call it coalition madness, right, Anshel? Well, isn't that always the madness of Israeli politics? Pretty much. That's Anshel Pfeffer in Haaretz Studios today, July 28th, 2022. I'm Dalia Shenlin, talking to you from just outside Jerusalem. We are less than 100 days until the elections. It's a milestone, 95 days out. And what do we know? Actually, not very much. We won't know very much until September 15th. When the lists must be submitted, and until then, we don't really know who the final parties are, who'll be running, in what constellations. We still have primaries for lists and for leaders coming up. But there's one thing the parties are already talking about. Before they're even final about who they are, they're talking already about who they will or won't join in order to form a governing coalition after the elections. Isn't that jumping ahead just a bit, Anshel? Well, yes, because until we know the results on the day after the election and... We can work out the coalition arithmetic and who adds up to a majority and who doesn't. It's not really relevant. But obviously, this is not about who will sit together on November 2. This is about messaging to the various groups of voters. This is the parties trying to position themselves vis-a-vis each other on the political spectrum. And how better to do that than to say who you won't be sitting with? But if they say yes or no to sitting with some other party now, won't they have to break those promises later? Is this issue of having a coalition like best friend or rejection, hasn't it gone into overdrive in recent cycles? Or have we always seen this kind of messaging and politics in the campaign? Historically, David Ben-Gurion, our founding father, said that he would be sitting in a coalition with anybody but Mackie, which was then the Communist Party. And Herut, which is the forerunner of Likud, Menachem Begin's revisionist party. And basically he wanted to show that he's a centrist and he was, you know, is prepared to form a very broad coalition. And his coalitions, uh, Ben-Gurion's coalitions over the years were quite varied and, and sometimes relatively broad. He had almost all the parties in them at one point or another. He had, he had a much wider choice than our politicians today have. And... What's changed is that nowadays when the politicians make those kind of statements, I won't sit with uh, religious Zionism, I won't sit with joint lists, etc., etc., many of those promises have to be broken for there to be a government. We're going to be talking about broken promises, coalition promises, coalition math. Overdose will explain everything, and we're going to have a little bit of help from this week's guest, Ravid Hech, the political columnist at Haaretz. But first, let's go through what we have decided are the most interesting electoral developments and the news of the week. I think one of the most prominent developments so far has been the very small faction called Derech Eretz, which is Yoaz Hendel and Svika Hauser, joining with Ayelet Shaked, who is pretty much the figurehead left from Yamina until very recently the governing party. Their new party is now called the Spirit of Zionism, or you could also translate it as the Zionist Spirit, but it's not really clear whether they have a real identity among the voters or if they're trying to represent an ideology, something we've discussed in previous episodes on this show. They're trying to represent something like a right-wing, possibly secular community on the theory and speculation that Yamina has lost its uh, national religious voter base and they need to try to represent a new community. But it's not clear whether they have any of the Israeli tribes on their side 
Their slogan, I found it interesting as well, is right-wing, principled, and we are doers, which sounds better in Hebrew. Anshul, what do you think their chances are of doing well, and does this even matter? Right now, the chances don't seem very high. Yamina, the main party, which was until very recently the party of power, ever since Naftali Bennett left and left his party to Ayelet Shaked, has been beneath the, the threshold. I think in every single poll, you you may have seen a poll whether over the threshold, Dalia, but I haven't noticed one. I think they're not far, that far from the threshold, but I think that in all the polls I've seen, they're, they're below the threshold, so those chances aren't very great. And Derek Eretz is a party which has never been tested on its own in an election. It's always been part of a larger grouping. And from what we've seen so far, the party, which basically consists of two people, Yaz Hendel and Svi Hauser, who are, I think, pretty impressive and experienced Israeli politicians and public servants and have, I think, what is quite a serious and well-thought right-wing, sort of moderate right ideology. You know, they haven't really succeeded very, so far in building for, for, for their party a, a constituency which is large enough to get them across the threshold and lots of explanations what that says about the Israeli right-wing right now. But the fact is that they haven't shown any electoral viability. Will these two sort of splinter parties uh, together, can they cross the threshold? We've yet to see any proof of that. And they have a real big problem. We were talking about how you position yourself on the political spectrum right now. There's only one issue which really positions Israeli parties right now is whether you'll sit with Netanyahu and what form you'll sit with Netanyahu. And where do you kind of fit in between the pro or the anti-Netanyahu camp. And they don't have a real position here because Hendel was Netanyahu's communications chief about 10 years ago. Tzvi House at the same time was Netanyahu's cabinet secretary. These are two people who were very senior officials in Netanyahu's prime minister office. They both left the office not on friendly terms. Like so many Netanyahu protégés, they leave and they try to strike out on their own and they sometimes do better, sometimes do worse. And they are both principled anti-Netanyahu Politicians, well, Ayelet Shaked, who did spend the last year plus as the interior minister in this government, was always someone who was willing to sit with Netanyahu, even though she also left Netanyahu's service even before that on rather rancorous terms. But she's never publicly ruled out sitting with Netanyahu. She only entered this government. And we also knew that she had a very hard time in this government. She was one, considered one of the less content members of the previous government and always on the verge of, or sort of chafing at being in a government with those different parties, especially the left-wing parties. And there was a lot of speculation that over the last year that she would leave and somehow join Likud again. She has never quite been the anti-Netanyahu type in the way the others have been. Yeah, she was in this government mainly out of loyalty to her old political partner Naftali Bennett and because she got a very senior position, interior minister. I don't think there was any real speculation of her joining Likud because the way back to Likud for her is probably closed as long as uh, Netanyahu and Mrs. Netanyahu, who who really hates Ayelet Shaked, are there. But she would be willing to join a Netanyahu Christian. Obviously, she also wants to rehabilitate herself in the eyes of the right wing and enabling an Netanyahu coalition would, would do that. She was prepared just a couple of months ago when the coalition was disintegrating and it wasn't yet sure whether Lapid would uh, replace uh, Bennett and, and the Knesset would be dissolved. She was prepared to join a narrow Netanyahu coalition right now. Now, since 
Hendelhauser and Shaked, on the other hand, have different approaches to Netanyahu. They came up with a compromise. What's the compromise? The compromise is that they're hoping or they're trying to angle for some sort of a unity government, which, you know, to my mind, it's not exactly clear what that means. And in that context, they're saying they would sit with Netanyahu, but they don't want to sit with him on their own. I find it a bit of a murky position right now, but they're making a clear statement that they're not going to outright reject Netanyahu for the moment. Basically, it means that everyone who's pro-Netanyahu is not going to vote for them because they're not accepting Netanyahu government in any circumstance. They're just saying only if it's a broad coalition. And those who are certainly against Netanyahu say, well, we're not going to trust them with our vote. They'll go and sit with Netanyahu. In this situation, I don't really see them crossing the electoral threshold. Well, I think that's what matters. I want to go back to something you said earlier, just to point out that you considered uh, Hendel and Hauser to be of the moderate right. I think that's a very interesting statement about the spectrum of Israeli politics, because from where I stand and for I think most of Haaretz people, uh, readers and writers stand, they're not at all moderate. Uh, they may not be of the of the religious factions, but they hold uh, certainly Tzvika Hauser, very expansionist positions with relation to the occupied territories, annexation. They're associated with, uh, you know, Kohelet Forum, at least Hauser is, and they're all, and so is Ayala Chaked. And these people have a broader right-wing agenda on various issues. Ayala Chaked was justice minister who led a you know, very extensive assault on the judiciary. And the association with Kohelet Forum makes them part of the community that has taken the lead on that assault. And we're going to talk about why that issue is so prominent, has been so prominent in the last few election cycles, and maybe making a comeback at this point. As long as we're on that topic, Let's discuss it. I mean, Israel Katz of Likud promised that if Likud returned to power, they will pass a judicial override law so that the Knesset can smack down a Supreme Court ruling if it deems a law unconstitutional, which is called judicial review. Do you think this issue of the judiciary is going to be a prominent issue on this campaign? It already is a prominent issue because that's the main issue that divides the right wing between the pro Netanyahu camp and moderate right-wingers like Hauser and Hendel. So I think it's going to be there. I think it's going to stay there. And it's going to be one of the main issues that will not just dominate the parts of the election campaign, but also the aftermath when, whenever we get there. I think it's important to point out that this issue was so prominent during the last few years of the Netanyahu government. But over the last year, despite the fact that the justice minister, Gidon Saar, came from Likud originally, there's been a kind of quiet, and he has not really advanced the kinds of policies that the people who are so critical of the judiciary have been trying to advance. Now, I would say part of the problem with the critique of the judiciary, and critique, of course, is legitimate, and you know any institution might need reforms, but it borders on a sort of conspiratorial deep state mindset. And this week we saw an interview with Moshe Saada, who is not a politician, but he was the deputy chief of the Police Internal Investigation Division. And in his interview, he gave uh, one of the points that he made was that the police were obsessed with indicting Netanyahu, maybe neglected other areas of investigation, and even hinted at a conspiratorial mindset between then attorney general and state prosecutor to take Netanyahu down at the expense of justice. Now, the question becomes not just the critique of the judiciary, but how it's associated with that conspiratorial deep state mindset and Sada himself might be running an election campaign, possibly joining the religious Zionist party, we don't know yet. But I think that's the question on my mind, is whether the critical attitudes towards the judiciary will actually bring that conspiratorial mindset back to the election campaign. Well, there's an irony to the whole Sada story, because many of the things that Sada said in the interview, actually, it was two parts of quite a long interview, were, were perfectly valid criticisms of the department in which he was working, the Department for Internal Investigations of Police. And basically, they echoed reports that before that have only appeared in Haaretz. You know, we, especially Josh Bryan Haaretz, his chief police correspondent, 
we've been covering that that story of how this department has been totally dysfunctional for years now and to take that and make that into the basis of what you call the conspiratorial kind of take on the Netanyahu investigations is an interesting way of looking at that but uh, I don't think it's going to change anything we've been hearing or you know as, as I think we said it already at the, at the very beginning of this series it's all priced in if you believe that the Israeli justice system has been on a witch hunt against Netanyahu you're not going to change your mind now because Moshe Sada said this or that, and if you believe that Netanyahu is as corrupt as hell and should be on trial, then you're not going to change your mind either right now. These things are not... I, I mean, I think they're important in the sense that they give us a sense of who's who's running against whom, but these things are not are, are not going to change, I think, uh, the the dynamics of... Uh, well, certainly the, vo- the voting uh, intentions of Israelis. Right, but my point where I agree with you is that for the right wing, there is a division. We see it in survey research and we see it also simply in, in how they communicate. There is a division over those who are you know, hardline when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and very nationalist, but also want to protect the judiciary. So the question is, can that compete with the bigger issues that we are talking about in which the voters might be considering more seriously the coalition politics, BBS or no. And let's go back to those coalition promises because we had a number of them this week. Uh, Benny Gantz also gave an interview to Khan News in which we effectively he effectively ruled out, I call it three and a half parties, because he said he doesn't want to go into a coalition with Netanyahu. He doesn't want to go into a coalition with the joint list. He doesn't see religious Zionist uh leaders, Batalos Smoltrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir, as his partners. And he hopes he doesn't have to go into a coalition with Ra'am, although he didn't totally rule it out. Avigdor Lieberman is already communicating that he won't sit with Netanyahu and he won't sit with Haredim. What do any of these promises mean? And how can anybody form a government in this situation? It's like every party wants to be an island unto, unto itself and form a government with some very narrow part of the Israeli public. I mean, you just mentioned now four or five different parties which won't sit with two or three other parties. None of these parties are talking about what they'll actually do in government, what they want to do, what their policies are, what their plans are for any of the issues that may or may not be concerning Israelis right now. It's all about where we'll sit. These are campaign promises of a very bizarre kind. They're campaign promises, but they're actually saying this is where we are on the spectrum, this is who we are broadcasting to, this is who we don't want to broadcast to because they're terrible and we think that, like us, you also think these are people, these are untouchables and therefore we won't sit with them. But hey, what are you going to do if you're actually a minister and in government? And I think that that's the real question that we need to be asking here. Well, speaking of that question, I think we identified only one actual interesting policy area that deals with issues uh, this week in terms of election uh, dynamics. And one of that, that main issue happens to be foreign policy. We had some foreign policy stories this week. Netanyahu struck out with a critical position against the leadership, Yair Lapid, in terms of this kerfuffle between Russia, Putin, and the Jewish agency's office in Russia. Netanyahu seemed to be extremely critical of Yair Lapid, practically begged him to get serious about running the country, implying that nobody can manage Israel's foreign relations except for Netanyahu. Can you explain what was going on there? I think that uh, Netanyahu is just trying to use this issue to, like you said, to underline his foreign policy uh, chops and his, uh, well, we've seen it before so many times in which Netanyahu has been saying, I'm the only statesman in Israel, I'm the only person who can navigate the ship uh, through the stormy international waters. Here's yet another example. He wasn't actually saying 
what Israel should be doing differently in this uh, in this crisis. He wasn't even saying anything about the crisis. He was just saying these kids, and you, you mentioned the pity, also mentioned Gantz, can't deal with it. Obviously, the, the, the serious business has to be taken care of by grown-ups. So the question is whether Yair Lapid can portray himself sufficiently as a statesman to rival Netanyahu and whether Netanyahu will be successful in capitalizing on his longstanding image as the country's top, top statesman. And I think the deeper question is whether voters actually vote on foreign policy credentials for the leaders in many other countries, in many other Western democracies, unless there's some really dramatic event. Voters simply have more domestic issues on their mind, whether it's the economy or other major you know, ideological issues in the domestic scene. I think when it comes to Israeli politics, Netanyahu has tried to make his statesmanship the big issue, but I'm still not convinced that that's really what tips elections, considering that hasn't been the big factor for Netanyahu in the past, even though he has tried to make it. So what have we had in the polls this week, Dalia? Well, the funny thing is the polls are stunningly stable. There haven't been too many new polls, but what there has been shows one thing and one thing only, that there is no decisive answer to this election. We see the parties that are expected to line up with Netanyahu still getting just around 60 seats in the most recent poll for Channel 13, which means nobody has a clear path towards a coalition unless that new party led by Ayala Chaket and Yoaz Hendel decide that they will go in with Netanyahu and he gets 59 or 60 and they can help top it up. That's all in the condition, of course, that they cross the voter threshold. And, you know, the other interesting question in that one survey from Channel 13 was that they asked people whether they'd rather have a coalition, whether they would support a coalition with the Religious Zionist Party in it or with Ram. And we found that twice as many, about 40 percent, said they would accept a coalition with the religious Zionists and only 20% with Rom, which does say something about the Israeli electorate right now. But would you like to say what you think it says about the Israeli electorate, Angel? I think that it says what we know, that they're split down the middle and the only things that can really break the big divide is if Arab voting turnout goes up, 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 or if one of the parties which is currently crossing the threshold in the polls, fails to do so. Those are, the, those are the factors, I think, that can change things. Nothing new about that. And with that, on to our guest. So we have Ravit Hecht, one of Haaretz's top political commentators, with us in the studio today. And we're going to talk a bit about something that Ravit has written about a lot over the last few years, about how Israeli voters kind of understand these subtle or not so subtle tribal messages that the politicians are putting out to them. Ravit, do you think this is working, what the Israeli politicians are doing right now? I'm not sure. I think that uh, I'm, I'm not saying it's completely meaningless, but it's less important than, you know, what we, the media, you know, and the focus we put on those uh, declarations. We saw before that people uh, who had said that they, they uh, wouldn't uh, sit with X, okay, like Naftali Bennett, for example, became prime minister at the same combination that they, uh, I don't know, uh, condemned or said that they, they wouldn't uh, participate in such coalition. I think that the main, still the main exhausting questions is whether parties, political figures, whatever, will they collaborate with Benjamin Netanyahu or not? And this is like the main questions. If you ask me whether after Netanyahu will leave the political arena, if it will happen someday, I don't know. 
In about 30 years, yeah. 50, maybe, approximately. Whether the problem or the dispute or the emotional conflict between those two tribes, I think it's, we are in the middle of really cultural, tribal conflict, and Benjamin Netanyahu is one of the radical, important symptoms of it, and not the reason itself. Do you think that all of these promises about which parties any one party will or won't sit with, it doesn't really mean anything and it's all about Netanyahu or not Netanyahu? Or does it matter when they say, well, I won't sit with religious Zionism, I won't sit with the Haredim? At this point, yes, because I think that even Netanyahu, now he says that he, he won't sit with, uh, the, with Mansour Abbas and his party, the Islamic uh, movement. Um, I'm not sure that that will be the situation if they be like the last factor for... For forming coalition. And even uh, Betal Smotrich and uh, his uh, party also, they say that they won't in any chance uh, collaborate with him. But I don't know. I'm not sure. The challenge here is to establish a sustainable uh, government. All the participants and all the players are relevant. So, you know, those declarations before elections, you can say whatever you say. The question is what you are doing after. And the history, the, the close history proves us that, you know, declarations is one thing, and even signing uh, letters and the uh, public announcements. And the reality is completely different. So why it is going to be different at this point? So if it's clear that a government can be formed in Israel only by breaking promises, and we saw the last two governments, Benny Gantz, two years ago, joined the government by breaking his promise to not sit with Netanyahu, and that was a government which lasted for six for six months, and now we had a government with Bennett breaking two promises, that he wouldn't sit with Ram, and that he wouldn't make Yair Lapid, Lapid prime, uh, prime Minister, even in a rotation, etc. Those uh, promises had to be broken to have a government now for a year. So if a government in Israel can only be built, and obviously you're saying Netanyahu will break his promise not to sit with Ram, and so and on. And also the, another promise which can be tested. Which will be tested. In the close the future. The promise which uh, Benny Gantz and uh, Gidon Saar made, that they uh, won't in any chance sit with uh, Netanyahu. And we will have to, to see what will happen after the election. So if a government Because the solution that the Haredi parties, the best solution, in their opinion, is a government with Benny Gantz to be the first uh, as prime minister, because you will never agree to be the second la- like the last time. And then there will be a government with Benny Gantz and Gidon Saar and Benjamin Netanyahu in the Likud and the Haredi, and it's like perfect solution for them. Whether And Gidon Saar and Benny Gantz, I have to say, they condemn it directly, uh, bluntly. Okay, And we're already expecting in three and a half months for them to break that promise. If it's all about breaking promises, mm-hmm. why waste so much time in the election with all these statements that we won't sit here with this or that? Is it serving a different purpose to make all these promises? If uh, Yair Lapid is going to announce now, yes, everyone is legit. You know, also the Balad uh, party, which, you know, challenging the Israeli democracy for a long time. Then it will be a target for, you know, and Netanyahu will, will kill him, you know, uh, uh, in, if we talk about uh, in uh, campaign uh, terms, right? So therefore, he needs to say it and to say it not, too clearly, you know, to leave some leverage, you know, to, to leave some space that he can uh, hang around in. But um, that's what I'm saying. I'm not taking those declarations so seriously because... But do any voters take them seriously? 
I think deep down, not. Even on the Netanyahu for or against promises? I mean, it seems like we all know that the Netanyahu factor is so big for the voters. Exactly. And I think I respect his voters and I assume that they are familiar with the history and they know and they know the guy, they know the, the leader. So I think that they won't be so disappointed or devastated if he's going to break another promise. In other words, the politicians make these promises. As long as he has the government, you know, I'm, it, it happened only, I don't know, a year ago, maybe a little bit more than a year, that Netanyahu started his efforts to be more uh, popular. He started the dialogue with the Arab uh, society. He declared in some points that, uh, you know, uh, Arabs are uh, important and, and, and uh, they can find a political uh, home in the Likud and stuff like that. And, you know, then I heard many Likud uh, supporters support it uh, to this, this uh, movement. And then after that, when there was uh, another uh, government with Ram in the coalition, then they became like the, the worst uh, terrorist uh, on earth. So, you know, I think that even if his most devoted supporters know what they are dealing with or who is their leader, and also the other politicians, I think that the public don't really, really, really believe. And if they vote someone, they are willing to be deceived. Will the voters be willing to be deceived because they're just so desperate to have a government so that politicians may say we will or we won't go into a coalition with so-and-so, but we don't mind from the voters' perspective if they're deceiving us as long as after the elections they form a government and we don't have to go into a six-election cycle. Do you think the voters are just that desperate? No. I think that they became more and more devoted to their tribe, to their political camp, and therefore they can contain everything. Netanyahu's family in this side and and another thing in the, in, in the other side. So I think that the most important thing for many voters who are totally hysterical, okay? They, they feel that the, the other camp really danger their, their life, their existence. It's a matter of, of, I don't know, living here, the way Israel will be like, the way their life will be. They, they think that someone else really attacking their identity, their, their really rooted and most important values, and they are desperate to win. And this is the problem, actually. Because there is no... Um, Has a clear-cut decision. Exactly, exactly. And this is the problem. This is the witched circle that we are stuck in. Is there any real division between ideology and positions on particular issues? Like we were talking about the criticisms and attacks on the Israeli judiciary. Is there such a dis- division between that and the pro or anti-Netanyahu attitude? Because if you're pro-Netanyahu or against him... Doesn't that mean you actually believe in a whole set of ideas, some of which touch on our very existence, as you pointed out? So maybe they're really kind of overlapping ideology and the pro or anti-Netanyahu. Of course, we could see that at the, this uh, point when the Knesset was uh, the Knesset uh, voted on the West Bank regulation. And then, then you could see it. I mean, it was allegedly it was crazy that the, the right wing voted against it and the left wing, even the far left wing supporters voted uh, in favor. Yeah. But actually, it was a great symbol 
for the fact that this war or this battle, okay, it's not a matter of right and uh, left, and it's not a matter of the, I don't know, the, the question of the West Bank or the status of uh, Jerusalem, for example. This is the Israeli version, the Israeli quiet, hot version, to the liberals versus uh, conservatives, a conflict uh, which uh, I think lives all around the world. And this is the local version for this. And as I said before, it's a tribal conflict. It's a cultural conflict. It's a matter of identity and nothing more than that. And this is strong enough. I mean, there is no need for other uh, issues, okay? And it's not a set of ideology or something like that. It's pure netto identity. And that's why it's so strong, and that's why we can't get through it, in my opinion. I understand your point, but I do think that it's worth remembering that from the perspective of the settler leaders, they were the ones who theoretically should have been upset by that vote, but their response tended to be, we know in the end the government will find a way to extend civil law to us and continue the viability of our lives here. Yes, but it also know that it's not for real. It's, it's part of a political theater or something like that. So then it became like an, a minor... Um, it wasn't significant, all right? Because I really believe so that the ideology itself not significant. It's something even deeper than that. Identity is something very, very, very important and crucial and, and emotional. Well, we have an ongoing debate here about whether the two are completely separate concepts or whether they are overlapping and interacting. And so I think that personally, I think that they, they can't be extracted. I think there are plenty of ideological issues where people who identify with one group as their identity do very, very much differ because we see it. We see it in terms of what people say and tell us and think about. But it's an ongoing conversation. Thank you. Love it so much. Haaretz, political commentator, Ravit Hecht. Thank you very much. And now it's my favorite time of every show. It's party time. Anshul, you are going to talk about your party animal for today. So my party animal this week is also connected to today's date. What date is it, Dahlia? It's July 28th. It is indeed. It's also the 29th day of the month of Tammuz in the Jewish Hebrew, call it what you will, calendar, which is the one we use when we also decide when to memorialize or hold a yard site for a famous figure. Whose yard site is it today? I have to really think about that. There's no particular yard site that jumps to mind. So it's Zev Jabotinsky's yard site, the founder ah. of uh, right-wing nationalist Zionism, what he called revisionist Zionism. He died today, 82 years ago, in Hunter, New York. I've never been there. Do you know? Have you been to Hunter, New York? I've never been to Hunter, but I do know that he died rather suddenly, and he was quite young. He was 59. He had a heart disease which his followers did not know about. He was visiting a youth camp of Beitar, the revisionist movement's uh, youth organization, and he collapsed and died in the arms of his followers. He was 59. He, had to, he hadn't been to Palestine for many years because he'd been kicked out by the Brits. And uh, it was 1940 with the war it was it had already started. He was in many ways already give, sort of handed on the leadership in Poland uh, to Menachem Begin and in the mandatory Palestine to David Raziel. But he is the founding father of uh, of revisionism, seen as sort of the leader before Begin of what is today's Likud. And in 1940, that's not exactly an obscure party. 
not not no, but we're talking about another party today all the same. In nineteen forty nine, the first Knesset election, which was the party of Jabotinsky, which was that the would be Cherut. So Menachem Begin's Cherut is one answer, and that's correct. But there were two. There was also a party which called itself the Jabotinsky Movement, the Revisionist Party, and that was also a party of the Revisionist Movement. The some of the revisionists didn't accept Menachem Begin as their leader. Cherut was the party of the Irgun, of the pre-state underground, or we could call it the military wing of the Revisionist Party. But the political wing, some of its members didn't get along with Begin, so they also launched a party in that very first election, and that's been forgotten for one very simple reason. Menachem Begin's party was much more popular. They won 14 seats in that first election. And the Jabotinsky movement, the competing Revisionist Party, failed to pass the threshold and only won 2,490 seats. Now, why is this interesting? Well, it's interesting for many reasons, but I think one of the reasons I just found the story interesting is because it completely epitomizes what we're talking about. The break between the parties really apparently had nothing to do with ideology, but was all a matter of personality and which team you're on. Indeed. And who was on that team, the not Menachem Begin team, the team of now forgotten revisionist figures who thought that Begin was an unworthy successor to Zev Jabotinsky, so they've all been forgotten. But one of their, one of those people, and he wasn't on the candidate list, but he was a central activist in that party. Was at the time a little-known historian named. I'm sure I you don't can know. Guess at this point, you have to tell me. A little-known historian named Benzio Netanyahu. So, <laughs> Bibi's father, the historian Benzio Netanyahu, did not accept Menachem Begin's leadership. He saw Menachem Begin as being an uncultured not an intellectual, someone who wasn't fit to to shine Jabotinsky's boots, and therefore he never joined Likud in Beg- under Begin's leadership. In fact, the Netanyahu family, for all the talk of how they epitomized Lik- the Likud uh, values and how, obviously now... It, it, with with Bibi Netanyahu being such a you know, basically having having made Likud his personal platform under Begin until Begin resigned in eighty three, the Netanyahu family never joined Likud or before that Cherut. They were always saw this as a, a, a saw Begin's party as something that is foreign, and they only joined later on when Yitzhak Shamir was the leader. So the very first Netanyahu in politics was not that loyal or supportive of Likud, as you may think. What I do find also interesting about that is that it highlights again how the Netanyahu family has experienced so much sense of being, so much of a sense of being an outsider, that once they became insiders, certainly Netanyahu. They've managed to both be insiders and, you know, be very dominant in the Israeli political scene while projecting to every voter who's ever felt like an outsider, I represent you. Maybe that's because of the historic experience of his father as well. And I'm sure it is. And they were double outsiders, outsiders by being right wingers and outsiders within the right wing as well. Exactly. And that wraps up Party Time and our Party Animal for this week. That also wraps up Episode 4 of Season 2 of Election Overdose. We want to thank our producer, Maya Benissan, and Amir Factor. You can also, of course, go online and read in Haaretz come about all the ins and outs of the elections. But we also hope that you will subscribe to this show and that you'll tell all your friends. I'm Dahlia Shenlin, and on behalf of Anshul Pfeffer 2, see you next week. Bye. 